The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It's good to be together as we gather in worship, and so would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father in heaven, it's all because of Christ that we're gathered together this morning. And so we ask that through the power of your word and through the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to stand firm in the true grace of God. Help us to be salt and light in a world in need, in desperate need of a Savior. And put the good news on our lips so that we might glorify you and that some others, many others, would be ushered into your kingdom and glorify you before you return. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Suffering has a purpose. That's what Peter continues on in 1 Peter. Suffering has a purpose. We may not understand the purposes, we may not like the purposes, but God uses suffering in the lives of believers for His purposes. And this morning, our passage and others like it function a little bit like sandpaper upon our modern sensibilities as we think about suffering, because no one likes suffering. Everyone wants suffering to end and to go away. And yet, again and again in the scriptures, we're told that suffering has a purpose when we have a sovereign God. James 1, 6 and 7 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith does what? Produces steadfastness. It has that purpose and function. Or 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We felt like we had received the sentence of death. For what purpose? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So what Peter tries to do this morning in our passage is correct our faulty way of thinking in thinking that suffering is the worst thing we could possibly experience in this world. Sometimes at our house, I'll hear one of our children say, that's the worst. Uh, I think they're watching this morning. Or they'll say, I'm starving. And and we'll say, well, no, no, you're not starving. You just haven't eaten something for about two and a half hours. and, And you can help yourself to a snack. You can't use that word starving unless you're actually starving. And we shouldn't say something is the worst unless it in fact is the worst. And here Peter says, suffering is not the worst thing that could befall a Christian. In fact, God is using it in my life and in your life for a purpose. So that we might be conformed to his image. So he takes the sandpaper and he wants to smooth out the rough edges as we think about suffering. Now, I want to just give a little bit of context of where we're at in this letter. The first portion of the letter was chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to 2.10 about the identity of believers. And then from 2.11 
all the way to 4.11 is how believers are to conduct themselves. And so we finished up the first half of that middle section. This is how you're to behave with good conduct in the political sphere and the public sphere and in the household. And then now in verse 3.13 all the way to 4.11, he wants to help us think about suffering unjustly for the name of Christ. He wants to give a word of reassurance for believers because of Christ's victory. We have vindication. So the main point of the passage this morning is that believers are blessed to suffer with Christ. Believers are blessed to suffer with Christ. But not only are they blessed, they're actually called to respond to suffering with a fearless, Christ-honoring hope. They respond to suffering with a fearless, Christ-honoring hope. In the face of all that's coming at them, they can respond looking to Jesus, not fearful of what's coming, and have great hope. Very simply, Peter is saying that suffering for the sake of Jesus is a blessing and not a curse. And that's a hard and challenging word for many of us this morning. And Peter's aim in giving that word is so that if we have transformed thinking, if we don't think it's the worst thing and we want God just to get it away from us, take away the suffering, but if we begin to have transformed thinking when it comes to suffering, then we'll respond differently to when it comes. And not only will we respond differently, he wants us to be able to give a defense for why we have hope in Christ. And so my plan this morning is to walk through two main questions. The first is how are believers to think about suffering? And then the second is how are believers to respond to suffering? And Peter's aim is that these truths, as we think about suffering, will overflow from our heads and hearts to our lips as we respond to suffering. So look with me now at verses 13 and 14. How are believers to think about suffering? He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you, should, you will be blessed. So I wanna help us to understand a little bit of the context of the flow of argument. Last week, Pastor John helped us to see that we are to return blessing for reviling in order to obtain a blessing. We saw this quoted in Psalm 34, that God's face is on those who do well, do righteously, but his face against, is against those who do evil. And then he says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good? This is a rhetorical question posing essentially that if, if you do good, there's no one to harm you because God's face is upon you. He's only against those who do evil. He's drawing out the proverbial truth that those who do good generally don't suffer harm, don't have many enemies. Proverbs 12, 2 says, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. So Christians ought to be zealous for good. That has been emphasized throughout this letter. Don't be punished for doing evil, but continue to do good. That's what you're called to. But then he concedes this point almost immediately in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. He concedes this because he's writing to people who are suffering. 
They're being maligned. They're experiencing slander and hostility, and it's increasing. And so he's writing to them in such a way that even when they're suffering for doing good, they wouldn't be caught off guard. They wouldn't see it as punishment from God, but that they would be able to stand firm. As things would escalate, Nero would impale believers and burn them alive, use them as human torches. And so Peter's writing in a very real way to say, get ready for the suffering that comes. Because it's not punishment, but it's blessing. And that's a surprising word. Believers are blessed to suffer for doing good. Why is it a blessing? I think there's a number of reasons. First, this is in line with what Jesus has taught. Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You can see the similarity of the words there. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get a heavenly kingdom when you suffer for righteousness sake. Why? Because it's confirmation. It's evidence that you truly are following Jesus. It goes on, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account for the sake of Jesus. Why? Well, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're following in the footsteps of all the prophets who have come before. And it's evidence that you're truly following Jesus. Blessing isn't in the experience of suffering itself. It, it doesn't mean you're more godly if you suffer more. But what it is saying is that suffering becomes a blessing because we're identifying with Christ. We're found to be with Jesus. It's a little bit like the question, if you were arrested and put on trial for following Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict? We would hope so. And the point is, we are to live our lives in such a way that we're identifying with Jesus. The way we use our time, the words that come out of our mouth, the way we use our money, people should be able to find evidence that we're followers of Christ. And the way that we suffer for the sake of Jesus is another piece of evidence that we're following Jesus. I remember as a young person, maybe in high school, and I imagine some high schoolers or elementary school kids or middle schoolers feel similarly. But I, I always wondered, how do I know if I'm really a Christian? How do I really know? How do I know it's not just because I grew up in the church and I heard all these stories and my parents are believers and we go to church every Sunday and we go to church every Friday. And, but how do I really know? Well, I think when you're willing to risk things that bring you joy, for the sake of Christ, or risk suffering for Jesus? Am I willing to endure mocking and scorn to pray before a meal, maybe at public school in the cafeteria or at the dorm? Or am I willing to endure awkwardness and embarrassment when I share my faith? Or am I willing to sacrifice that summer internship in order to go on a missions trip because I feel like God's calling me to that? Mocking or scorn for our faith is evidence that we're truly following Jesus. We're willing to suffer for him. We're willing to take risks for Jesus. I think this point is most helpfully illustrated by the life of Peter himself. Remember who wrote this. This is the apostle. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he says, I don't know the man. He called down curses on himself and said, I swear to God, I don't know who he is. He's not with me. 
And then what did he do after that? He wept bitterly. He knows what it's like not to align yourself with Jesus. In the moment of persecution, when you could suffer for Jesus, he denied him. And he wept bitterly. He knows firsthand how that feels. And then when Jesus restored him, what happened in Acts? As they were preaching and they were beaten, they said, we're counted worthy to suffer with Jesus. What a joy. We didn't deny Christ. We're with him. We're on the road to Calvary. So when it says it's blessing to suffer with Christ, it means there's confirmation. There's evidence for all to see that you are God's child. And that's why it's blessing. Peter himself testifies to this. He makes the point that no earthly suffering, no matter how severe, as long as you're suffering for the sake of Jesus, can take away your eternal destiny, your living hope, your heavenly inheritance. So what Peter does for his readers, which will be needed in the coming days, is he reframes suffering for them. He turns it upside down. The world says this is punishment, God's absence when you're being punished. Look, look, look at you, you Christians. And Peter says, no, no, no. God's smile is upon you. This is evidence. You're with Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. Not only is it a blessing, but God's, it's God's will for a purpose. Look with me at verse 17. It says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The suffering is according to God's will, according to God's design. And he's reemphasizing, I don't want you to suffer for doing evil. I want you to suffer for doing good as you follow him in the footsteps of Christ. When you do evil and you suffer, there's no benefit there. There's no credit. We saw that earlier in 1 Peter. This is a reminder that if we're suffering just because we're rude or harsh or crude or a jerk, it does not honor God. But Peter also says it's better to suffer while doing good, meaning that it's better to suffer now than to suffer punishment from God on that final day. I think 2 Corinthians 4.17 kind of highlights this. It says, this suffering that believers experience is a light momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. This suffering is producing something in us. It's light and momentary compared to all the riches that we'll take hold of. But it's also better to suffer now with Jesus than to have your best life now, deny Christ, and then to suffer later in judgment. And there's a purpose behind all this. We see that actually a little bit later where he says you're to make a defense. But we saw that all the way back in chapter 2, verse 12 as well. He says you're to suffer unjustly so that some would see it and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that they would come to faith. And that very same purpose is in view. Righteous suffering is an opportunity to display the praiseworthiness, the treasure that is Jesus Christ above all else. So how are believers to think about suffering? Believers are to see that righteous suffering is a blessing, it's God's will, and it has a purpose. It's a blessing. It's part of God's will. And what that means is that nothing you experience, any suffering you experience, slander, maligning, 
persecution, challenges, fiery trials, in the pathway of obedience and following Jesus is ever wasted. None of it is meaningless. Can you imagine having that level of confidence walking through life that whatever challenges, God's going to use it? No fear. Now, the second question. Now that we have that way of thinking, how are we to respond to suffering? Look with me at the second half of verse 14. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, Peter turns to the implications of this way of thinking. If you understand that suffering is a blessing, it's according to God's will, this is how we respond to it. And I think he highlights two main things. Get a fearless fear of Christ, a fearless fear of Christ, and then be ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within you. Let's look at that first one. See that first phrase at the end of verse 14. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This could be translated, do not be afraid of what these people threaten. Referring back to those who seek to do you harm. And the ESV doesn't make this clear, but this is likely a quote all the way back from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. So turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapters 7 and 8, because I want to look at that in greater depth. And he already referenced Isaiah 8 when he talked about a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. The context here is that the southern kingdom of Judah is being ruled by King Ahaz. But the northern kingdom of Israel has partnered up with Syria and they're coming to invade. An alien invasion and they want to dispose of King Ahaz. And look with me at chapter 7, verse 2 of Isaiah. What does it say? Chapter 2 of verse, verse 2 of chapter 7 of Isaiah. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. His knees are shaking, his heart is swaying, he is fearful. What are we going to do? I'm going to die. That's where King Ahaz is. Now look with me at verse 4. Isaiah says to him, be careful. The Lord said to Isaiah to say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these smoldering stumps of firebrands. Isaiah promises Ahaz, God is on your side. He's going to deliver you. And as a sign of that deliverance, I'm going to give you a sign. It's the sign of Emmanuel. We see that later in chapter 7. A virgin will give birth. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's the sign that is promised. God will surely do this thing. You can put your money on that. You can take that to the bank. But then now look with me at, at chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. Then Isaiah says, 
For the Lord spoke to me thus with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear. This is the quote that we see in Peter. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Why? But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So the kingdom of Judah is supposed to overcome their knee-shaking, hand-quivering, voice-trembling fear. We're going to be invaded. And he says, don't fear these people who can't do that much compared to God who can do so much more. Fear God. So overcome your little fears with a bigger fear of Yahweh. He is the one you ought to fear. Don't fear these tiny little fears. I know it seems big right now, but don't fear them. What can they do? They could just destroy you. God, Lord of heaven and earth, who created all things, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he is the one to fear. So overcome your tiny fears with this bigger fear. That's how Peter's using it here. When he says, don't fear, but honor the Lord as holy. Overcome these little fears of people who can kill you with the greater fear of God who condemn you, can condemn you to hell. That's what it says in Matthew 10, 28 to 31, right? And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. They can't even do anything to your soul for all eternity, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Overcome your tiny little fears with the fearsome wrath of the living God. But the most stunning thing about that Matthew passage is that in the next verse, we should probably hear about the fearsome wrath of God. Don't fear those who can just kill the body, but fear he who can condemn your soul to hell. But then what does he say in the very next breath? He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So after he says, fear God, don't fear anything else. God is the only one worth fearing. What does he say in the very next breath? He says, look at God's profound love and care for you. He cares even about the little sparrows. None of us even think twice about the sparrows. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from God's sovereign design. And so that's how much God loves and cares for you. So fear not. So overcome all the fears that you have with a greater reverence for God, which is mainly characterized by what? His love and care and affection, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think this is best illustrated by children and parents. In a good, healthy children-parent relationship, kids know that mom and dad love them so much. And yet the kids also know, I can't just do whatever I want. I can't disrespect mom and dad. I can't be rude to them. I shouldn't talk back. I don't just do whatever I want. I need to listen but that reverence for parents from a child doesn't at all diminish the love of parents. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned by the Nazis, said this, Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who fear God have no more fear of men. 
Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who fear God have no more fear of men. When you fear and revere God rightly, when he takes center stage in your heart and mind, all other fears fall away. Look at the latter half there. He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is also likewise a quote from Isaiah 8.13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. So within that same context, don't fear these lesser fears, but fear God. Put him, set him apart as holy in your heart. But he does something really interesting. And, and Andy alluded to it in his prayer during our worship time this morning. That Christ is Yahweh. That's what he says. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Not just honor Yahweh as holy, the God of heaven and earth from the Old Testament before the beginning of time, but now here we get a New Testament writer saying, Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He's the one that existed before all time. We are to fear him. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Christ. We're to fear him and to display his lordship over our lives. Now, not only are we to get a fearless fear of Christ, we're to be ready to defend our hope. It says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. This is not just kind of a formal apologetics setting or a courtroom setting, but it's just the normal, everyday, spontaneous setting in which those who don't know Jesus ask you, why do you live that way? I, I, I've been watching you. You, you live differently. What, what makes you tick? Why are you always so positive and happy? This implies a number of things when it says be prepared to make a defense. It implies that believers are living in such a way that other people see our good behavior. It implies that believers' good behavior is stimulating curiosity in the lives of those around us and not scorn in many ways. Believers' good behavior communicates a hopefulness, and believers' good behavior will solicit questions about it, and then believers will be ready to answer when they're asked about it. So one of the questions for us this morning is, do we live in such a way that others can see our good behavior? Not for accolades and praise, but we live in such a way that we're following Jesus, maybe even on the receiving end of scorn and maligning, but others say, Something's different. Something's different about you. Can you tell me what that's all about? Believers possess an evangelistic and apologetic power in the way in which we live, in the way in which we think overflows into our hands and feet and our actions so that we can say, Jesus is better. That's why I live. So when was the last time people asked you, why are you so positive and hopeful? Or you always seem so unflappable when things get tough. Or I sure wish I had some of your perspective on life. Tell me, what makes you tick? Or you seem to have it all put together. What is that? Or maybe it's you never seem to have it put all together. But you seem to be so kind of full of faith and hope and positivity in light of that. What, what is that? This defense that Christians are to make is to come with gentleness and respect. When we rightly revere God, we don't need to be brash or angry or defensive 
as if someone's going to poke a hole in our arguments. We don't come across angry, but rather winsome, gentleness and respect. We want them to see the beauty of what it looks like to trust in Jesus. Because we're not worried. There's a certain level of confidence when you fear nothing in the world and revere God alone where we can have gentleness and respect in engaging those who don't know Jesus. And then it also says, having a good conscience. So, our behavior ought to match the content of our words so that we can say, not only do as I say, but not as I do, but rather do as I say, or at least listen to the things I'm saying, and then look at my life to be the proof and evidence of that way of life. Watch me. Come into my home. One of the most stunning things that I experienced was when I invited an unbeliever into our small group. And they sat there and we said, you know, you don't have to share, but if you want, you can share where you're, how you're at and what, what you're, what, you know, where you're at spiritually. And we went around and we studied the Bible and we shared a meal together and they had a bunch of kids that were running around. And afterwards he turned to me and he said, this is so weird and interesting. And he kind of said it with a smile, and I was like, well, why? And he said, well, I've just never gone to a stranger's home. We didn't host it, so a complete stranger to them. They welcomed us in. They welcomed in our whole family, and then you care about how we're doing spiritually. You just listen. Where does something like this exist in the world? I think it was a testimony of John 13, 35. By this, the world will know that we are your disciples when we have love for one another. They saw the love that we had, genuine love for one another, that if it weren't for Christ, we probably wouldn't be friends, maybe in that small group, but they came in and they saw something's different here. I don't get it, but I want it. A clear conscience. And it's interesting to note, he says, make a defense Gentle and respectful with a clear conscience. So it's threefold. It's not just the words we say, but it's how we say it. Gentleness and respect. And it's not just how we say it, but that our lives are consistent with it. That's the best evangelism. When all three of those things are present. And it says the result of this is that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, earlier we said in chapter 2 that the purpose was so that some would glorify God on the day of visitation, that they would get saved. And here he says that they might be put to shame. So which is it, Peter? And I think it's both. He says, you're to make that defense so that people hear and they see and that God opens their eyes and turns on the light bulb and so that they believe and they glorify God on the day of visitation. But even if they continue to revile you, even if it intensifies, even if they say, I don't care, you can take all that Christianity stuff and, and I can't finish that sentence. You can just take it. He says, they're going to be put to shame. It's not a feeling that he's talking about, that they're going to feel shame. It's that they're going to be defeated on that day of Christ. That you will be vindicated. If you persevere, you will be vindicated. So whether someone comes to faith as you persevere or they never do, it doesn't matter. God will vindicate his children and his people. So how are believers to respond to righteous suffering? Believers are to have a fearless fear of God, revering him alone, overcoming those little fears with a greater fear, characterized by the love of God. And then we're to be ready. 
We're to be prepared to make that defense. So I want to apply this, and I want to ask two questions. Are we engaging the lost? This passage suggests that people are asking and that we are to have an answer. Unbelievers should be able to see our hope as we endure difficulty. So very practically, when was the last time someone asked you about your faith? When was the last time someone said, why do you do what you do? Or what makes you tick? I've been watching you. If this isn't taking place in our lives, I think this verse is a good encouragement, a good challenge for us. And I think a good diagnostic question is, how many unbelievers do we have in our life? I think it's increasingly easy for us to be distanced from those who don't know Jesus. And in a world such as ours, in which people are searching for answers more than ever, we need to engage with those who don't know Christ. I was on the uh, phone app called Nextdoor, where you connect with all your immediate physical neighbors. And a lady posted this, and I thought it was really interesting. She said, want to know more about the Bible, about God or salvation? I'm looking to start an informal study at my home and would love to have you there for some good learning and fellowship. The Bible is really relevant for today. No pressure will be applied to join a church. This is a Bible study only. Please let me know if you're interested. How many think she got some positive or negative responses? Well, she only got positive, and 14 people said, I'd be interested. I want to study. And I think they're going to social distance in her backyard and study the Bible. So let me just plant that as seeds for some of us. Maybe not all of us, but for some of us. We've lived in the same neighborhood for decades, and we still don't know our neighbors by name. We don't know where they're at spiritually. This is an opportunity for us to engage those who don't know Christ. Are our words intelligible? We need to make the hope of the gospel intelligible. And I think what Peter draws out, I think it's an implication when he says, make a defense for the hope that's within you. And hope is very often used throughout 1 Peter as a synonym for faith. Be ready to give a defense for the faith that you have in Christ. And that means that our faith is defensible. If you look at all of the reasons for Christianity, all the manuscript evidence for the New Testament, all the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, you realize this is not just a shot in the dark. This is not just a leap of faith, but there's evidence for this. You could read Tim Keller's Reason for God or Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Both of those resources would be good, but our faith is defensible. We can give a coherent answer for why we believe what we believe. But my guess, more than anything else, is that when we engage unbelievers, they don't necessarily want the list of apologetics. They might, but they want to know that someone cares because they've not encountered that. Someone's willing to listen. And I would even encourage us that one of the best things we could possibly do is just to read the Bible with unbelievers. It's the pure spiritual milk of the word. Let me recommend a resource. I think it's in the bookstore. It's called The One-to-One Bible Reading by Dave Helm. You can do it with believers. You can do it with unbelievers. And I personally have done it. I remember inviting a neighbor who had all these questions, and I've shared the gospel half a dozen times with him, usually to, oh, I guess that's kind of interesting. And so I said, well, why don't we just walk through the gospel of Mark one section at a time? And so we went to Starbucks, and we read, and he read in advance, and then we talked about it. And I didn't think we were getting anywhere. And then after a while, 
I kept referencing the Exodus. I think I've told this story before. And he, he, he had no idea what I was talking about. And I said, well, you should just watch Prince of Egypt. And I was like, actually, better idea. Let's just read Genesis. And then we'll get to Exodus eventually. So we started Genesis. And by the time we got to the flood, he got saved. And I think evangelism is not difficult. It just requires us to engage others with our time, with our energy, and say, would you be willing just to read the Bible? I know you have some ideas. I have some ideas. And, you know, our ideas aren't all that helpful sometimes. Why don't we read the Bible together and see what God's word says? And this is the power of God unto salvation. What's going to save people better than reading the scriptures together with them. Let me encourage and exhort and challenge us to that end. Find someone this month, this year, to read the Bible with one-on-one. And I think we want to be able to have the gospel on our lips. We want to be able to paint the pictures of the gospel compellingly for the lost. That even this morning, we know that there are some who have never heard the truth of the gospel or perhaps have heard it thousands of times but have never responded to it. Or perhaps you're watching from home, maybe for the first time. Maybe you're sitting next to your unbelieving spouse or you are the unbelieving spouse sitting next to your believing spouse. Maybe you're a teenager or a child. We want you to know more than anything else that there is a God in the heavens, who created all things. He made the world according to his design, and he made it good so that we would be in relationship with him, so that we would know him and love him. It was a perfect creation. But sin entered into the world, and we can just see that so apparently, can't we? Corruption in the world, injustice, and even in our own hearts, we know that we have the capacity to do evil things. And we know that it's not just more laws that are going to undo that. Because there are things in our own hearts that we don't want to do that we do. And so we realize that we're all under God's wrath because he's created a perfect standard. And we have fallen short of that. But out of God's great love for mankind, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life. To die a death on our behalf so that if anyone would believe in him, They would have eternal life. We could get forgiveness of sins that he would actually go inside of us, transform us from the inside out. The Bible talks about taking out a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh so that the things we want to do, we do. And the things that we don't want to do, we don't do because we have the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And all those who trust in Jesus can receive that free gift. Anyone. And all you have to do is respond to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Admit that I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. Only Jesus can do that. And to receive his forgiveness of sins and to receive his new life that he gives us. And if you've never heard that before, if you've heard it a thousand times and it stirs you perhaps for the first time, oh, we would love to be able to pray with you. We would love to be able to walk with you. I'm sure that there are A couple dozen people who would be willing to read the Gospel of Mark with you for the first time. If you're watching from home, call us. We would be glad to respond. You can email me. We would love to find a way for someone to be able to walk with you so that you can begin a relationship with Jesus and experience forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ.
And for all those who are trusting in Jesus this morning, that's the good news. That's the good news that infiltrates our hearts and overflows into our lips and into our hands and feet so that others would see, they would look at our lives, whether we're experiencing good or suffering, whatever we might be experiencing, physical ailments, challenges related to COVID, unemployment, uncertainty, and there's plenty of uncertainty to go around, that they might see that our treasure is in Christ, that Jesus is better, that it's worth following him. No matter what comes, Jesus is better, and that we would put our hope and trust in him, that we would even be able to say, I'm counted worthy to suffer with Christ. And as people look at that and say, I don't understand how you can possibly celebrate or find joy in trials or suffering, we could say, well, would you be willing to listen? I would be willing to share. Would you be willing to read the Bible for me? I think it actually unlocks the secrets, the mysteries of life. And would you be willing to read that with me? And my prayer, my prayer for all of us this morning is that God would conform us to his image that we would rise to new heights of joy in sharing the good news. That's where the greatest spiritual highs I have ever experienced come from, is when I can engage with someone who doesn't know Jesus and say, here is the life-giving truth of Jesus Christ. If you want joy in Jesus, follow in the path of suffering, putting your neck out, suffering in awkwardness with neighbors or embarrassment, so that you could share the good news because there's no greater joy than to declare this good news and draw someone to God, bring him in, and allow them to experience the life-changing truth of the gospel. I pray that many of us would walk in that way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask now that you would cause the name of Christ to be exalted in our hearts and in the hearts of all those watching. And then we pray that you would ignite in these northern suburbs a hunger for Jesus. Would you be pleased to save many so that they would see our lives, engage with us, and be able to glorify God on the day of visitation. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.